I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. It's a minor prophet, but an important prophet. Just because we call them minor prophets does not mean that they are uh, minor in terms of their message, but usually in terms of the length of the book that they have written. Uh, For those of you who don't know, or might not remember, you know, Haggai is more of a B-side character, B-side track that we see in the Old Testament. Um, Not one of the major figures that we're so often used to, but Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries, prophets given to the people of God, Israel, as they had been exiled and brought back from slavery uh, to rebuild a temple that had been destroyed. Here, Haggai speaks God's word to encourage the people to work to build and rebuild a temple for their day and age with the promise that an even greater temple was still to come. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. You'll notice that we're reading this for a purpose as this passage will be cited in our New Testament scripture reading this morning. Haggai chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, saying this, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house being the temple of Solomon, which had been destroyed in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And yet now be, yet, uh, now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, so fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts yet once more, and in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasuries of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And now turning with me uh, to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 12. So we conclude Hebrews, uh, this particular chapter uh, this week. If you recall last week, we began to consider what happens in a worship service under the new covenant that we have assembled and been gathered not to the base of Sinai as Israel of old, but now we've been gathered to the heights of Zion But now we ask, now that we've assembled together to the courts of heaven itself, what are we to do? What have we come to do? Verses 25 to 29 will give us that answer. Um, I would like us to begin reading for broader context in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness, gloom and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given, that if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, not to Sinai, but to Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, 
to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That, that is to say, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. This is God's word. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word, infallible as it is, inerrant, and inspired by your spirit. And so we ask that you would bless the reading of the word this morning, but Particularly, we ask that you would bless the preaching of it, uh, that we might benefit from it as we hear our Savior speak through Scripture. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Important question for you. What is preaching? Perhaps it's a question that we uh, don't give much consideration to. Perhaps, in fact, preaching is something we take for granted. It's just the thing you do on Sundays. But I think it, it merits consideration. Is preaching simply a Christian version of a TED Talk? Is a sermon a call to bear social activism? Is a sermon a Bible lecture? You know, at first glance, comparing a sermon to what you might hear uh, on or watch on YouTube, a sermon might not seem different from any other speech. In fact, it might seem far weaker. You compare uh, this sermon, for instance, with uh, any other great speech in American history, uh, we would think, well, Martin Luther King did it better. Abraham Lincoln did it better. In World War II, Winston Churchill always did it better when it comes to speaking and public speaking. Now, these are speeches when you think of uh, uh, Churchill's speech uh, after the fall of Dunkirk. Uh, you think this is a speech that merits its own right in studying. Uh, a speech that that, 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 that rounded up uh, Great Britain, uh, England together again as a rallying cry against the Nazis. You think these speeches are earth-shattering. You think of Luther, Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream, uh, uttered in Washington, D.C., and you think, man, that altered the course of history. It was earth-shattering. You think of Lincoln at Gettysburg, earth-shattering. Powerful speeches. Speeches perhaps you had to memorize in high school. But none of these speeches have ever been said to have shaken the heavens. This morning we find that a sermon is different. Here we give our attention not only one who, to one who speaks from earth. In fact, not even primarily, you're not giving primarily attention to me. Here we find out we give attention to one who speaks presently from heaven, and who by his speech shakes heaven and earth. Scripture has a lot to say about preaching, and my job here is not to be exhaustive or exhausting. Rather, I would like us to consider what this passage this morning tells us about the nature of the ministry of the Word. What does it tell us about preaching? I'd like us to consider three things, and those three things we found in three distinct sections in this passage. First, we'll consider verses 25 to 26. Second, we'll consider verse 27. And finally, we'll consider verses 28 and 29. Again, asking the question, what is preaching? What does it do? 
I think there are at least three things that preaching does according to this passage. First, we will consider is this in verses 25 and 26, that preaching warns of the coming judgment, of the day of the wrath to come. We're going to notice the imperative that's given here in verse 25. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Simple enough, right? One of the things we have to remember is that this letter is concerned with the speech of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, in many ways, long ago, many times, variety of ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us, how? He had spoken to us by his son. Hebrews is concerned with the speech of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, make sure that we do not neglect the things which we have heard so that we do not fall away. Continue. Uh, do not let your hearts be hardened, chapter 4, in the things that you have heard. Listen to what the Spirit says today. Do not harden your voice as those in the wilderness. Over and over and over again, the concern with the author of Hebrews is with the speech of God and our response to God's speech. But notice this. Do not refuse him who is speaking. It does not say, in reference to Christ, do not refuse Christ who once spoke long ago, though Christ did speak long ago. Nor does it say, do not refuse Christ who will one day speak, though that itself is true, right? We, we can't simply relegate Christ to the annals of history and say, well, Christ is just another nice teacher. Historical as he was, he's categorically different from the great teachers throughout American history, world history, Western Civ, you name it. Christ is qualitatively different. Because it does not say, it doesn't simply say again, do not refuse Christ who once spoke. It says, do not refuse him who is speaking presently. The focus is on the way in which Christ speaks now. The question we have before us, though, is how is it that Christ speaks now? I want you to notice the, the way in which Hebrews brings this into focus. It's the same method he has done throughout this entire letter. By contrasting the church under the new covenant and the benefits that we have now that Christ has come with the church under Moses, the church under the old covenant. A broader context, going back to verse 18, it's a contrast between Israel at Sinai, who heard Moses speak from earth, and now, under the new covenant, Christ who speaks from heaven. You recall last week when we had that long portion from Exodus read where Israel hears the voice of God boom from heaven. And what does Israel say? Make it stop. Give us somebody else to speak God's words. We can't handle him who speaks from heaven. So the Lord appoints Moses, the man of the earth, to speak to the people from earth the things of God. Moses speaks to the people on earth gives the law, Exodus chapter 20, how do the people respond? Idolatry. What do they do? They, they fashion themselves a golden calf. They begin to say, this is the God who has delivered us from Egypt, and what happens? Thousands of them are struck down dead in a day. And so, the question that the author of Hebrews is giving us here, it says, think of Israel under the old covenant. They heard a man speak from earth, and they weren't able to escape the judgment to come, how much more is the case with us if we fail to heed him who is presently speaking from heaven? Again, Hebrews chapter 5, Christ has risen on high. He's a great high priest who has ascended into the true sanctuary in Zion itself, to the true temple, the true courts. He now reigns as our king. He now 
uh, serves as our prophet making intercession for us, but here he also is our great prophet who now speaks to his people. And so we must give heed to him who has spoken, him who is speaking. You see, when we gather together on the Lord's day, again, 18 to 24, we've ascended the heights of Zion, we've gathered to hear our Savior speak. And so the question is, how is it that we hear Christ speak? Well, latent throughout this entire letter, whole book of Hebrews, that Christ speaks through the ministry of the Word. Christ has appointed office bearers, ministers of the Word, appointed to proclaim Christ and all the benefits found in Christ. So we have to say that the sermon is not a call to bear social activism, though a sermon does elicit a social response. There is a call to repentance, both individually and corporately. The sermon is not a bare moral pep talk, though a sermon does include the, the, the preaching of God's moral precepts. The sermon is not a bare sentimental devotional. It's not something that's just here to kind of say a couple nice frilly things. We could go home uh, as if somebody had just read a Hallmark card to us. Although the preaching of the word should govern our affections, and should set our hearts on fire. I might even say that the, the sermon is not even a Bible commentary, though a sermon must be grounded in Scripture itself. See, qualitatively, the sermon does something different that you don't even get in Sunday school. It is Christ himself speaking from heaven. Christ who warns from heaven to flee the wrath to come. So we, we have in uh, the, our second Helvetic Confession, one of our confessional standards uh, within the Reformed tradition, the very first chapter is on the nature of the Word. And what is it? The very, one of the very first things it says is what? That the preaching of the Word is the Word. That's a tall order. In other words, that insofar as the sermon clearly explains and elucidates the Word of God, to that extent, we must take the sermon as the word of God. Think what uh, Paul himself says in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, when we came to you and, you, and you received us and what we had to say, you received it for what it really was. Not the words of man, but the word of God. And so often we apply that passage to our understanding of Scripture, which is fair. This is a valid application. Scripture is God's word written. And yet what Paul is talking about there in 1 Thessalonians, he's talking about the nature of the word. That it is not man's words, rather it is God's words. So that the preaching of the word is the word. Is not my word like fire, the Lord says to his prophet Jeremiah. Is it not like a hammer that shatters? How is it that every prophet begins the message that God gives him? Thus says the Lord. God's message communicated through a particular mouthpiece, through a particular means. When we consider Abraham Lincoln or Churchill or Martin Luther King, all these have given great earth-shattering speeches, and I'm not here to denigrate any of them, but they are qualitatively different because as earth-shattering as those speeches may have been, they have never touched the heavens. They may have altered the course of American history, world history, but they still fall short of the nature of of what a sermon is. See, Christ speaks through his ministers, his servants, 
his preachers. And he shakes not only the earth, but the heavens. Here, the author of Hebrews is citing Haggai chapter, uh, Haggai chapter 2. You see that here in verse 26. There's that divine promise to shake both heaven and earth. We have to recall our broader context to understand the way in which the author of Hebrews is using this passage. Israel has been exiled for her sins for, for years and years of rampant idolatry, for years of gross immorality, and finally the Lord has kicked them out of the garden again, so to speak. He's kicked them out of the promised land. He's destroyed their temple. He's exiled their priests. And yet now after 70 years, the Lord in his kindness and in his mercy has begun to bring them back, has begun to, 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 to draw them back and call them to rebuild the temple. And yet, in the midst of building this new temple, he promises that there's an even greater temple to come, a temple that would surpass even the glory of Solomon's temple itself. And so when Haggai speaks of the shaking of heaven and earth, he's not speaking primarily of the final judgment. Rather, he's talking about the means whereby the nations will be brought in as the temple itself expands. Call to worship this morning was from Isaiah chapter 2. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that he may hear us, that he might teach us his ways. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, which David has been preaching, uh, been preaching through, speaks of the growing of the mountain of the Lord. See, the whole purpose is not, uh, in Isaiah 2, the promise is not that one day all of us are going to buy a plane ticket and fly out to Jerusalem to ascend uh, the, the Mount Moriah where the temple once stood. Rather, the point is now that, again, verses 18 to 24, now that we have assembled what? We have come to the heights of Mount Zion. So that anytime anyone comes to church to hear the gospel preached, they have come to the mountain of the Lord. And so that the, the mountain of the Lord grows through the growth of his church. And the growth of his church comes through the ministry of the word as Christ himself speaks from heaven. I think it's quite fascinating that phrase of the shaking, the rending of the heavens and the earth occurs several times in the Old Testament, always within the context of the Lord delivering his people from Satan's domain, Psalm 77, 2 Samuel chapter 22, or of the Lord pouring his spirit out on his church. She causes us to think about the nature of preaching as something qualitatively different than a TED Talk. Preaching is the means whereby our Savior shakes heaven and earth. The means whereby he draws in his elect throughout the world. It leads us to our second point, that if faithful preaching warns of divine judgment, then secondly, verse 27, faithful preaching also exposes weak foundations. And what is a preacher's task but to call you to set your sights on that kingdom that has a more certain foundation? To that celestial city that will not pass away. The whole point of Hebrews chapter 11, we need to recognize Hebrews chapter 11 is part of this, uh, the, the overall rhetoric of the, uh, the minister, of the preacher of this letter. This is likely a written sermon. That the saints of old not only provide a paradigm for how we are to live, but they also in their life and in their death testify of the world to come, to set our sights on the things that cannot be shaken. Abraham himself seeking that heavenly homeland. Moses himself seeking some, uh, uh, something that has greater value than the treasures of Egypt. So much so that suffering reproach with Christ, suffering with our Savior, is seen to be of greater value than the treasures of this world. 
Why take stock in the wisdom of this age when the foolishness of the cross brings a greater wisdom? The word of the cross, the preaching of the gospel is the power of God. It exposes the philosophies of this age as being vain and idle speculations. The local preacher might not be as exhilarating as as the latest flash in the pan philosopher. I I think there's a a certain uh, play on words that happens here in the sermon. Uh, Throughout the, the letter, throughout all of Hebrews, There's a call to endurance over and over and over again. Keep enduring, keep enduring through hard times. Endure, persevere, persevere, persevere. And the very last time he uses that word to persevere is in Hebrews chapter 13 where he says endure what? Endure this sermon. Endure this word of exhortation. Right? We know what it's like to sit through an unbearable sermon. Perhaps you're feeling it now. Um, But there's the call that that this is the means, it's ordinary, it's not flashy, but it is the means that Christ has appointed to grow his church, that his kingdom might expand. It's the preaching that brings the dead to life. It's the preaching that exposes men and their sins. It's the preaching that confronts us with a Savior who is not only willing but able to deliver. There's a lot of books uh, out there uh, that speak a lot about being relevant in preaching, as if the task of preaching is about to make, you know, making as many contemporary references as possible. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think what we see here in Hebrews is it does, preaching is something much more substantive. Preaching exposes the utter irrelevance of the things that this world deems as lasting and important. The shaking of the heavens. What is being shaken? Everything. Look at that in verse 27. What is shaken? The things that have been made. What has been made? Everything has been made. The purpose of preaching is to, to, to rouse you from your slumber. The image over used in Hebrews chapter 2 is that we, we have fallen asleep in a boat and we're drifting away. And here, the, the preacher comes with a glass of cold water and throws it on your face. It's supposed to, to jolt you. Uh, the, the, the warning passages in Hebrews, it's much like, you know, you're going on a road trip and you fall asleep at the wheel and you start to drift over the yellow line. There's a big semi-truck coming towards you. And he wails on the horn. It scares you. The purpose that it scares you is not to tell you that you're dead. The purpose of those warning passages is to tell you that unless you alter your course, you will soon be dead. Preaching shakes us, rouses us from our slumber. It subverts the dazzling speeches of worldly wise men, it exposes our faulty foundations, and it points to the only thing that cannot be shaken. What is it that cannot be shaken? It's God himself. Think of Psalm 46, which speaks of the kingdom of God. It's, it's the great psalm that, that Luther uh, uh, based, our mighty fortress is our God, upon. Though, though the heavens give way, though the mountains uh, tumble and crash into the sea, what is it that remains? There is a city that remains that brings everlasting joy, whose strings make glad the city of our God. Notice the scope again of what is shaken, everything that has been made. Preaching is intended to get your eyes off of lesser things. What is it that you have set your hope and your confidence in? Have you put your hope, have you put all of your ducks in the economy? Have put your hope in the latest election Is your hope found in the latest toy or gadget or job promotion or the special relationship that you think will fix everything? 
Preaching is designed to shake you from putting your trust in those lesser things. And the Lord will accomplish everything he has sought to do and accomplish with his word. He will not let his word return void. Those things that we set up as idols, as carved images, the Lord will tear down so that he might set our hope on something that has even far greater value than these things that bring us lesser joy. Calvin himself says in commenting on this passage that the Lord shakes us for this very end that he may really and forever establish us in himself. In a few moments we're going to sing, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is what? It's sinking sand. We need to understand that 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 is for real. The purpose of preaching is to show where the sinking sand really is and where the true rock can be found so that we might build our lives upon it. It's how Christ concluded the Sermon on the Mount. Preaching points us away from the things that are passing away so that we might set our sight on the age to come to that kingdom that cannot be shaken. One final thing that preaching does in this passage, verses 28 and 29, is that faithful preaching leads to reverent worship. This is really, in my opinion, the climax, not just of this section, but the letter. It's not to say that chapter 13 isn't important. It really is. Chapter 13 is, how do we live in light of uh, the great truths that we hear in Hebrews 1 to 12? What's simple? Let, Let brotherly love continue. Continue to care for the stranger and the neglected. Show hospitality. Let marriage be held in high esteem. Obey your elders. The list goes on and, and six or seven things that the author or the preacher spells out. But here we find that preaching is what we call a means of grace. You look at your shorter catechism, question 88. Preaching is an ordinary means of grace. It is the means that Christ has instituted whereby his people grow. It doesn't look fancy. It doesn't look flashy. That's what we confessed last week. That under the new covenant, nothing looks flashy. But it's of a greater glory than anything you will ever find under the old covenant. Because now we finally have the substance. Now we are given Christ through the ministry of the word. Now Christ comes and he exposes our misplaced confidence. Christ comes and he extends a promise of entrance into an unshakable kingdom. Verse 29 says, therefore let us be grateful quite, uh, that's the ESV how it translates it. Quite literally the, the text says, therefore let us possess grace. In other words, let us lay hold of this grace because we have received an unshakable kingdom. See, Christ's kingdom is not contingent upon who sits in the governor's mansion in Salem. Christ's kingdom is not contingent upon who will occupy the White House in two months' time. Christ will continue to grow his church through the ministry of the word. Christ will continue to save sinners through the ministry of the word. Christ will continue to judge the nations through the faithful ministry of the word. Christ will continue to reign even if we do not yet see it. Again, bringing into view the scope of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, Christ reigns now presently over all things. We're not waiting a future millennial reign where Christ will descend and occupy a seat in Jerusalem. Christ reigns now. He has occupied the highest seat of authority that has ever existed or ever will exist, both in this age and the age to come. He rules now, and he is in the process of putting all things under his feet, as Hebrews 2 says, dot, 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 though we do not yet see it. The church here looks fragile and frail, beset by so much weakness, suffering so much persecution, so many trials. We, like everyone else, are beset with sickness and death and misery. 
And yet we have a great treasure found in earthen vessels, that the power might be made manifest that it belongs to God and not ourselves, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because Christ is king, because the promise of entering that rest, entering that heavenly destination still remains, we are called to worship reverently, not flippantly. Faithful preaching beckons us to do more than simply learn more Bible data so we can win the next trivia night with our Christian friends. Rather, the goal of faithful preaching is to direct our hearts to worship, to worship with reverence and awe rather than indifference and yawn. God's holiness is what determines our worship. Notice how verse 29 ends. Our God is still that same consuming fire. One who gets very jealous at graven images. One who is very jealous at idolatry. And it is God's holiness that determines our worship, not seeker-sensitive needs. Because just as God is not pleased apart from faith, so is worship not acceptable apart from piety, apart from reverence. God is holy And that determines how we ought to worship. I think when we talk about the the so-called worship wars of 15, 20 years ago, everybody wants to talk about worship styles. That's somewhat relevant, but that's that's not what proper worship is talking about when we look at the New Testament. That's, That's a tertiary concern at best. When it comes to understanding the nature of worship under the New Covenant, it's not necessarily primarily about the instrumentation or the mode of worship, but rather the fact that what our worship is, it must reflect reverence that is due God's burning holiness. When we look at the preaching in the world around us and so many churches around us, and we see how flippant preaching has become, we should not be surprised that worship has gone the same route. And yet we see here that one of the tasks of preaching is to promote proper piety. It's to promote reverent worship. What's the key, what's the key uh, to reforming worship? It's not simply revamping uh, uh, the musical style. I would say it's actually not that at all. Rather, the key to reforming worship is to reform the pulpit. To have a preaching that promotes reverence and awe. You do that You'll change and reform the worship that is due God. There is a joy that's to be found under the new covenant. We see that in verses 23 and 24, as we saw last week. You have not come to Sinai, but now you've come to Zion, where you've come before the feast uh, of angels, an innumerable gathering. You've come before God, the judge of all, and Christ, the mediator of a better covenant. This is a scene of great joy, but it is also a scene of great gravitas. There's a weightiness to it. If you've not read C.S. Lewis's little essay, The Weight of Glory, I'd encourage you to do so. That's the, the Hebrew word for glory mean, it means a weight. That means worship should be something that is, in fact, weighty. Something that is not done flippantly. Worship should not reflect the passing fads of a passing age. Rather, proper worship, whatever it looks like, should elicit something of the weightiness of a kingdom that is unshakable. And it should lead us to set our sights on the reality we have come before a holy king who has pardoned us of our sin and calls us to walk the highway of holiness. And we need to take that with great seriousness. 
This, this is, if, if we might call it this, Hebrews 12, 18 to 29 gives us a heavenly liturgy, what true worship really looks like under the new covenant. Israel refused him who spoke on earth. Shall we go the way of Israel and refuse Christ who continually and presently speaks from heaven? Our society, I think, is unable or barely able to handle a mild pandemic. Do you really expect that it will navigate the coming wrath? If preaching is to unsettle us, just see how the, the, little, the, the, the slightest shift in the news unsettles everyone around us. Preaching shows us where to set our hopes on something that is more uh, uh, certain, more stable, that so that when bad news comes, we will not be shaken by it. Now that Christ has come, there's an intensification in the call to holiness, not a relaxation from it. First Peter says this, that the judgment first begins at the house of God. Peter says this as well, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, speaking of this present world order, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? You think, how frightening. Everything around us will be set on fire the day of judgment. Where's the hope? Where's the good news? Well, Peter then says this, but according to God's promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth, a land and place wherein righteousness dwells. Don't set your hopes on the things that will be consumed, that will be consumed in the fire. Set your sight on that kingdom which cannot be shaken. How do we do that? The encouragement is simple to hear our Savior speak week in and week out through the faithful ministry of the Word as He feeds His people from the pulpit. Because he is our king, our priest, and he is our prophet who lives forever on high and rules us even now. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would seal it on our hearts and strengthen us as we make our way through this earthly wilderness. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.